I do think that if you have a clear purpose as an organization, um, and it's not just a you know a purpose that's been developed to support communications, it really sits at the core of everything you do. It makes everything easier, to be perfectly honest. Welcome to another episode of Communicating Purpose. I'm John Higginson and I believe that the best way to get a message across clearly is by talking about something you really believe in. I call this the power of purpose. This week I'm joined by Chris Duncan, Director of Communications at Client Earth. Client Earth uses the law to try to protect our earth and our environment. Across 60 countries, Client Earth works with more than 150 lawyers and policy experts to inform, implement and enforce the law advising decision makers on policy and training legal professionals. Client Earth's campaigns include the greenwashing files, working with environmentalist investigators to highlight how high-profile firms' communications often fail to match up to their reality. Client Earth first came to my attention back in 2015 when it won a high a Supreme Court ruling that the UK government was being unlawful in allowing air pollution. It's been an issue I've been passionate about for, for many years and which Higginson's strategy has been campaigning on alongside the Ella Roberta Family Foundation. Before he joined Client Earth, Chris was Global Director of Communications for Pro-Choice Charity Mary Stopes. Um, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great. Well, uh, let's just ask for, first about yourself. Um, just... Just tell us about your 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 journey uh, to to client client Earth. Yes, I've been working in communications in in one form or another for about twenty years now. Um, so I actually, I guess, my first proper job in communications outside of being a paperboy uh, in my in my younger years was working uh, with a long term unemployment organisation, helping um, people in particularly deprived and and. Uh, unemployment heavy areas of the UK to get back in into work and it was from there that I really started to build a passion for uh, for communicating with purpose and for trying to to use uh, my skills my professional um, time to make the world a better place uh, which sounds very grand but uh, it's it's really what I'm about in terms of in terms of uh, my professional life and so from from working on long-term employment, I had a very short stint uh, actually working in the city on payments, which was a slight diversion, uh, perhaps from from full purpose. Although I will say it was also heavily involved in in trying to combat fraud. So that was my kind of little bit of purpose in in that part of my career. And then ten amazing years working for, as you say, Mary Stopes, um, who are one of the world's biggest provider of of um, safe abortion and contraception services across. Uh, particularly parts of um, sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, but also in, in Europe, uh, and was really privileged to be there for, for some time. Um, but then somebody uh, mentioned Client Earth to me and, and said, would I be interested in in a move? And it's something I'd been thinking about for some time, having, as I said, been involved in, in particularly countries in sub-Saharan Africa and, and parts of Asia, already feeling the impacts of climate change. And it was becoming more and more apparent that this was the most pressing issue 
facing humanity, um, possibly ever, certainly I would say today. And, uh, and so joined Client Earth, uh, which is a very different organization. Um, you know, I came from uh, Mary Stokes, which is service delivery, you know, to, to something like 13 million women every year um, with healthcare professionals working in public health and, and reproductive rights to environmental and climate uh, action with lawyers. So it's quite a, a shift, but a, one I'm really, really pleased that I made and um, and proud to be able to work for the organization. Hmm. Tell me about one of the biggest challenges you've, you've personally faced so far at Client Earth and how have you navigated it? <clears throat> yeah, it's a good question. I kind of... Um, I kind of hinted at it there in some ways that the transition was a really interesting one from um, from what was service delivery and public health to working with lawyers, particularly on, on climate issues. And, that, you know, it's a great privilege to work with some incredibly creative and smart legal minds. Uh, but, you know, lawyers come with a particular uh, starting point and and the challenge sometimes um, of doing communications based around law and litigation is is a is a real one you know and trying to balance the need to be quick to be uh able to respond particularly with the media and social media quickly but accurately um and while you know sometimes trying to to sign off for instance with three four five six seven lawyers sometimes um can be a real challenge and certainly you know, my previous experience uh, working with lawyers was getting advice from a general counsel who tell you what the worst case scenario um, would be if something uh, went wrong and you'd take that advice and you'd work out how to to navigate it. Um, going from that to working just entirely with lawyers and legal professionals has been a, you know, it's been a challenge, honestly, and it's one that continues to be the case. It's an exciting challenge, though, because the flip side is we work with well, I think it's one of the most powerful tools for affecting change and systemic change that we need to see at the moment. And I, I'm lucky, as I say, to work with some incredibly creative um, lawyers, which is a phrase that was sort of new to me, certainly four and a half years ago when I started working with Client Earth, and also lawyers who are really passionate about communications, which I know will be a surprise to some people. And they're very good at it as well. We have some fantastic spokespeople. Um, we also have colleagues who will who legal colleagues who will come to us as comms professionals and to me and say Chris we really need to be putting a release out about this or I want us to be much more aggressive on social media so it's a really interesting challenge and balance and, and I think in terms of how I've navigated it um, with some support from some great colleagues who've been doing it for longer than I had um, certainly working with legal professionals but also through recognizing the power um, of the law to to affect change and the importance of working within it and maintaining uh, you know our reputation for expertise and our ability to to use the the law as a tool to affect change yeah and um, will you say there that 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 lots of people might 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 think that lawyers aren't particularly passionate about communication but in many ways law is communications it's, it's just communications in a different field isn't it and and while communications pro professionals are generally working in the public realm and they're not in a courtroom um lawyers are generally taking an argument and they're and they're and they're making their case and so uh, i mean i've worked with with uh, lawyers in a professional capacity in the past i've sometimes found it hard working with lawyers because they are professional communicators 
but they speak in a different language and and they've usually got a lot more time and space to actually make their point than they would get in a five minute TV clip or a two minute interview or something like that. And, and so I've, I've sometimes found it hard to get them to talk in a more succinct fashion. Have you, have you, have you found that yourself? I, I think that's a very astute point. And certainly, you know, if I even look at our email communications, brevity is not um, the default for, for legal minds. Certainly, um, yes, it's, it can be a challenge. But as I say, we've actually now got some really, really good communicators because you're right. Actually, that's what they're trained to do is to put a compelling argument across. Um, the trick is turning that argument from, you know, a 40 minute presentation or conversation or um, 40 page legal briefing into a one line message or a, a pithy 30 second, 20 second response in a media interview. But certainly it's been a, it's been a real joy to see how good some of the lawyers are at doing that. Yeah, great. And, uh, and I should probably qualify that I love lawyers. My father is a lawyer. And so if there are any lawyers listening, uh, you are great communicators. But as Chris just points out there, you've you've often got more time and space to do it than uh, than uh, press and media people. Um, so just tell us about um You've got some really good wins that those lawyers that you work with have made recently. One of them is the uh, successfully taking the UK government to court over its inadequacy over net zero strategy. Tell us about that campaign. Tell us about behind the scene and and, and uh, how how you'd work on that to try and get as much coverage as possible. Yeah, so just to give the context on, on that, the, the UK government... Um, has legally committed to, to net zero and to delivering on net zero by 2050, they came out with their net zero strategy for how they were actually going to do that um, late in 2021. And, you know, we, we looked at it in some depth and it became clear that the numbers effectively didn't add up. So what they were proposing in terms of action wouldn't actually get you to, to net zero. And, you know, again, this is where the law is really powerful because they have legal obligations and because it's in law we can challenge that and i think it's really important and feels quite important um at the moment that that governments can be held to account for um for the the pledges that they make and the policies they put in place so that was the kind of starting point for for the legal case and you know in many ways it's um it's quite a simple uh message and and communication strategy to to develop because the starting point is they're not meeting their legal obligation. And that's a really basic message, but a really powerful one. And that what they're proposing in terms of a net zero strategy doesn't work and won't deliver net zero. So, you know, fundamentally, we start from a point of saying the government's not doing what it said it would do, and it's not doing what voters want it to do. And, and the overwhelming majority now of, of voters are in support of of delivering net zero by 2050 or even more aggressively. And actually, you know, it's um it's a, a legal case where we were working in partnership with with two other organizations, fantastic organizations, um, Friends of the Earth and the Good Law Project. And that actually gave us a really interesting opportunity in terms of being able to have the same overarching message of, of holding the government to account, of making sure that we're going to hit net zero by 2050 and then being legally obliged to do that. But with three different organizations, with three slightly different tones um, in terms of voice, with 
um, slightly different access to different audiences. We were able to, to work together and collaborate on the legal case and the overall messaging, but then to slightly nuance that depending on the audience that we have. And so for, um, for us, we would target our, um, our supporters, the same with, with Friends of the Earth, with Good Law Project, and it gave us much broader uh, access to, to audience, but also the ability to tailor those messages more than if it had been a single organization. And so I think that was, it was really powerful. Um, and so we all put our, our own social media content. We all did um, bits of joint media, but then also, you know, where we thought, for instance, we could work more effectively, perhaps with the FT and, and it made more sense for Friends of the Earth, Good Law Project and, and us to come together on something like The Guardian then it just gave us a bit more power. And you know, working in partnership and collaboration can be challenging sometimes, but it also can be hugely powerful, um, particularly when there's really clear alignment. And because we were all effectively part of the same case, it was, um, it was a really powerful tool and be able to, uh, to nuance the message and to have access to much wider audiences in doing that. Great, yeah, and I think that's, I think so many uh, comms pro- professionals are finding much more that they're working with other comms professionals in other firms and, and and working in partnership with we do this all the time you know finding other organizations that are essentially trying to do the same thing we go out and reach out to those organizations because we say look rather than us all separately ba- uh, 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 doing this why don't we work 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 together and i think that we more and more uh, comms professionals uh, should be doing that and will be doing that um so tell us a bit more about your, your your greenwashing files campaign. This just 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 talking about this. We we uh, one of our clients is um, Changing Markets Foundation that, that Higginson Strategy works with, and they've done something very similar in that they've got uh, set up a website called greenwash dot uh, uh, org, and um, and there that they are holding uh, public organisations to account. These aren't they're not holding them by the law, but they're holding them to their word, and so so often. Uh, organizations try to get quick hit quick win uh positive coverage and actually you need organizations and and the public in the in the public realm saying hold on you said that you do this before and actually this is uh this is either something that you said you do and you haven't or it's complete greenwashing that you you were you were trying to pull the wood wool over our eyes and, and convince us you were doing something better for the environment than it than it really is but you're doing this in a legal uh, capacity. Tell, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of organisations have been concerned about greenwashing and the growth in greenwashing, particularly in the last few years. But it's it's been around for a while. This is not a new phenomenon. I would say it's just grown significantly. Um, our first real action was back in 2019, where we, we had a legal complaint against BP for one of their um, ad campaigns. And um, it was kind of classic, uh, look, we're, we're driving towards a net zero future. And, you know, some, one of those where if you looked at it, you would have an impression of, of a company that's you know, heavily investing in renewables and, and, and little else. And the reality was that actually something at the time, like 96, 97% of their capital investment was in, in fossil fuels. And I think that's really at the core of, of what we're looking at is where a public claim is being made or a view of an organization is trying to be put forward that does not align with the actual operations of, of, of an organization or a, a corporate particularly. And it's actually quite easy to figure that out because you will have, 
you know, advertising campaigns that will say one thing, and then you have annual reports and financial statements that give you actual numbers on where the money is and where the investment's going. And when those two things don't match up, then, you know, that is fairly classic greenwashing. Um, so we took that complaint back in 2019. They actually kind of admitted that, you know, this isn't something we should be doing. And they pulled the ad campaign, which was great. And we looked at um, this being an issue, particularly across uh, the oil and gas industry, but it's much broader than that. And and did the same analysis, basically. Here's a, here's a set of adverts for um, nine oil and gas companies. What is the reality, particularly in things like their financial statements, their reporting on where the money is actually going? And I do want to give a shout to to Martin Waters in my team who who worked on this tirelessly and developed a lot of these profiles, working with the smog, the um, uh, investigators, environmental investigators. So we developed these nine set of really in-depth uh, profiles of, of oil and gas companies and just taking their advertising and putting it against what they're actually doing. And, you know, some of it is um, fairly standard greenwashing claims, like natural gas is clean, um, which, it absolutely isn't um, that, you know, we can just rely on carbon capture technology. We don't actually need to worry about reducing emissions because technology will save everything. So there's a real consistency actually across the different um, the different organizations. And we put a lot of work into, into social content around these. And I think greenwashing has actually been a really interesting area um, for social content because there's a real sense actually that when people see the reality, they're quite shocked because there's a, a, I think an idea that people are honest generally and they tell the truth and that they don't try to, um, you know, completely alter the view of, of who they are as an organization. I think, you know, particularly with greenwashing, if you are going out and saying we are a, you know, a net zero ambitious, carbon future um, organization and it's not true because you're just completely investing in new oil and gas people are quite shocked by that and I think increasingly people are going to understand that a lot of environmental claims are either overblown or they're just not um, connected to reality and I think certainly the case with some of the stuff that we pulled out in the greenwashing files you know there's there's companies whose investment in um uh, in renewables, it's like 2.2% of their capital expenditure. But all of their advertising um, shows wonderful green forests and, you know, chemists with green vials saying we're developing fantastic new energy of the future. So I think highlighting that and particularly, say, using short, snappy social videos to do it has been a really engaging way to get that message across and to to shine a light on on some of the practices that continue to to go on. So, do you think your communication is easier because you have a purpose? And certainly, personally, I find it much easier to to communicate when I know the purpose and I and I believe in it. And you know, that's a personal thing, I think, and it's a choice that that I've made. I do think that if you have a clear purpose as an organization, um, and it's not just a you know, purpose that's been developed to support communications, it really sits at the core of everything you do. It makes everything easier, to be perfectly honest. You have such a clear sense of direction of why you're doing what you do, and that comes through 
um, your communications. It should come through the way you are and the way you behave. And you know, as as charities, as as nonprofits, we would talk quite often about mission because that's what each organisation will start with. You have to report your mission to the to the charity commission, and that tends to be your single guiding light. And it's incredibly powerful when you get that right, and when it's embedded within everything that you do. And certainly that's the case at Client Earth. It's very much the case at, um, at Mary Stopes is you focus entirely on the mission. And does this deliver against our mission? Is it in support of it? Are we being guided in what we're doing, both in communications, but at more broadly as an organization? Is it aligning with how we want to be and how we want to deliver on that mission? So yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, as with some of the greenwashing stuff, consumers the general public are not are not daft they can tell when a purpose i think is genuine and when it's been developed by you know the pr guy and um certainly i wouldn't be the person in a in an organization or charity developing the purpose but it gives me huge power um to to work with and on a personal level i find it hugely motivating that's why i do what I do and, and when you're passionate about something when you believe in it I think that comes across in the way that, that you communicate and the energy that you give to your to your work absolutely um what have you been most proud of uh, achieving yourself during your communications career yeah it's a really good question somebody asked me this recently and I had to to think about it for a long time because I've I've been lucky and worked on a, a whole range of things and the, the thing that really sticks out to me even now is is actually working on a global rebrand for, for Mary Stopes, which is a really interesting project and it sort of crosses boundaries of communication sometimes and marketing and and also purpose. And um, you know, for an organization like Mary Stopes, the, the brand is actually hugely important because they have clinics, they have outreach workers um, providing what are you know difficult and and sometimes uh, culturally challenging services and so the way that the organisation is and its way of communicating its visual identity has to be welcoming it has to be reassuring it has to be accessible and that's a huge challenge and doing that across thirty seven different countries is even more of a challenge and you know I think one of the interesting components for that type of work for me is is visual communication and visual brand and and it's something quite often as as pr and comms professionals we don't think enough about and we tend to only focus on the words sometimes and almost devolve anything else to a designer and you kind of push it off to a side and what was really interesting with that project is um again because of the the things that had to be conveyed because of the multiple languages and sometimes the low literacy levels within uh communities we're working in it's really important to have a visual language that was really welcoming and warm and then to to renovate clinics and and all the outreach works in that and i i'm was really privileged to work on that project because at its core it was trying to make what can be certainly life-changing and sometimes life-saving healthcare more accessible for people in developing countries 
and and I like to think we were quite successful in that. And certainly, I get quite a buzz every time I see a photo of a clinic or a, an outreach worker wearing one of the t-shirts with the with the visual branding on. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I've I come from a journalism background uh, uh, all the way through from kind of university paper for uh, through to local paper and national paper and what I've always what I've found more more kind of challenging and interesting because for me that's just bread and butter I can write a press release very quickly and I do the do the writing and I've you know seen my name in print and all those things actually if you look at that picture behind me and, and listeners you can't see that but it's a it's a picture of uh it's a it's it's an advert that I created myself with the designer that went in uh, in the New Statesman and and actually I kind of had more fun and interest interest in that because it was working that different medium uh, to kind of create an advert and I remember people saying why are you proud of an advert you can just pay for that space um, but actually for me because I've I've been in the you know every every day we get earned earned coverage so that was some, something a bit different for me and so I kind of remember that as well. Tell us about a difficult. What's what's been your hardest day in the office ever? Ooh, um, I think one of the again, this has thankfully been less of an, an issue at Client Earth. One of the challenges again, Mary Stokes was a lot of crisis comms. So you know, working in some quite difficult environments providing healthcare services to millions of women, there were crisis comps, you know, things happened. And there were certainly a couple of days where, you know, Friday afternoon, call from Daily Mail, we're going to run this story tomorrow morning. You've got 20 minutes to respond and it's it's not looking good. And that there were a couple of days like that that were really challenging. And in a strange way, I enjoyed the experience it's quite an interesting, and I'm sure many of, of your you know, clients and colleagues and people listening will have had this, the, the adrenaline of dealing with a real crisis and what's in front of you. Um, it can be both hugely challenging, but also uh, quite invigorating in a strange way. Um, so there were certainly a couple of days like that that were really, really tough and lasted you know, multiple days, three weekends. Um, but also rewarding in hopefully being able to, to get to a good outcome. Uh, but I can't say I missed too much of the crisis comms at the moment. And, do you, and, and did, you, did you find yourself like I've, I've sometimes done in the past on crisis comms, up till midnight refreshing the kind of Daily Mail screen to you know, wait for that story to drop and kind of seeing, what, seeing how it's turned out and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. And I certainly, that's interesting. It's one of my memories of, of most of the crises and bits of crisis comms that I've been involved in is the waiting for it to land and <clears throat> occasionally it not landing, which is the most bizarre experience because you're still hitting refresh at, you know, when you get yeah. up at five in the morning and it's not there, you're sort of happy, yeah. but still terrified at the same time. I know. And then you just find, and you speak to the journalist and they just say, oh yeah, they just didn't have space for it. And they've kind of forgotten about the yeah. story and they've moved on to the next thing. And it's, and, it, and it's sitting in the inbox of the news editor who may or may not run it that day, or they might push it for another day. And you're just thinking, please just get it done so we can, so we can move on. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's also a good reminder of advice that I've been given many times, which is it's not as important to everyone else as, as it is to you. And it's not personal. No, exactly. Um, 
what do you do personally to de-stress when you've had a stressful day? Uh, I'm a big runner, so I, I like to run a lot. Um, and I've actually been struggling the last couple of months with a toe injury, which is slightly pathetic, but has, um, has kept me off the, the tracks and the roads. But I, yeah, I, I run a lot and, and um, try to get out on trail runs um, as often as I can. Uh, but I find it very uh, cathartic and particularly long, long runs. I'm one of those strange people who quite likes a sort of four or five hour run. Um, but that tends not, not to be at the end of the day. No, I'm 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 prepping for an ultra marathon at the moment, actually. So I, I'm I'm also one of those weirdos. Um, tell us about what um, uh, tell us about what media you uh, consume yourself. Yeah, so I um again having grown up in a period where it was actual newspapers, and you used to go into the office every morning, and you have eight or nine different newspapers. Um, I'm a f- real passionate believer in in reading widely and reading things that challenge you. So I, I try wherever I can to to read very different points of view and perspectives. I have also go to stuff that I tend to read every day. So the FT, the Times, New York Times, The Economist. Um, you know, it, it's interesting now how much climate coverage there is and how good it is in so many different outlets it's really hard to actually keep on on top of the the best of it. Um, and I will say one of the things I, I read every day is uh, there's a, a an outlet called Carbon Brief who produce a daily roundup of all the, the important climate news. It's fantastic. And so I read that every single morning and uh, alongside various, yeah, um, broadsheets, podcasts i'm quite an avid reader and listener i think it's hugely important to do communications well that you understand the the wider context that you're working in yeah well, i'm sure those long runs are a very good place to be uh, uh, putting on some of those podcasts as well aren't they absolutely uh, chris duncan director of communications at client earth thank you very much for joining me john higginson on communicating purpose been a real pleasure thank you